This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. What is the latest with the LRT project? Interesting column in the Hamilton Spectator today, uh, speaking about the mayor getting antsy when it comes to uh, the delays and just general feet dragging. Is that the case? Let's bring in Mayor Fred Eisenberger, mayor for the city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Uh, Mayor Fred, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Good afternoon, Scott. Uh, last time we chatted, you were all dolled up, you and your uh, lovely wife, and we're heading out to a function. Uh, tell us how that went. Ooh, Remember the function was uh, Netherlands. Uh, you were going to uh, meet with some people who, uh, from your, uh, where you originated oh, from. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Uh, unfortunately, we uh, we ran in with traffic jams. So that was no! the day that uh, the car flipped over on the, uh, just ahead of the Gulf Line on the QEW. Oh, that's right. And we couldn't get out of town. I have to, no! we, uh, we were an hour and a half trying to get past the, uh, the Gulf Line to get to uh, Toronto. Tried the 407, tried the QEW. And uh, finally thought, you know, by the time we get there, it'll be over. So we uh, we circled back. So we didn't go. Oh, no. So, I, oh, yeah, man. You know, that's one of those traffic issues, you know, that uh, right, yeah. one, all, one all the more accident. all the more reason for some LRT and high speed trains and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Sure, and you know, we and we considered uh, getting on the go, but we thought by the time that uh, by the time we got there, the event would have been over. So, in any event, uh, LRT is uh, is is currently still moving. Uh, you know, they uh, the RFP was out, and I assume the people are putting their uh, their uh, qualifi- qualifications together. But the uh, the issue of whether the city of Hamilton should take on the uh, the maintenance and operations is still in the hands of the province. Uh, I would say uh, it's certainly not their fault that uh, this has kind of provided a delay. It was something that uh, a council of the city of Hamilton brought forward and uh, council of the day supported. And uh, so that request is in, and uh, we're hoping this uh, after two months now that uh, very soon they will give us an indicator as to what their position is in terms of whether we do or whether we don't. And obviously, whether by we, and whether o- we do operations or, ma- or maintenance. Yeah. And obviously, if you have these two different deals, that greatly changes this process, this bidding process. Yeah, we would have to. Uh, they would have to do the RFQ again. Uh, the RFP hasn't gone out, so that's the delay. Really, is uh, we would like to get to the RFP stage so we can get a good understanding of what the overall costs uh, are going to be and and uh, how that's going to play out for the uh, you know the Eastgate to McMaster uh, run that we hope and anticipate will fit within the billion dollar budget. So. I, I want to get on with it. Uh, so does the province, I believe. Uh, but uh, you know, Metrolinx is uh, still trying to decide on uh, which way they're going to go with this one. But uh, we don't we don't want to wait too long. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, I, I fully agree that this is going to be an election issue anyway. So that isn't really the issue around timelines. But we just don't need to dilly dally on this thing. We're we're moving. Money's being spent in the uh, the Metrolinx uh, Hamilton Joint Office. Uh, design is being done. Uh, underground services are being located. I mean, all the work that's uh, necessary is being done. Uh, we just need to get to the RFP stage. Uh, have, has the province or Metrolinx given you any indication why this has taken the time that it has and, and how long it will take to give you a decision? No, and I, I, I haven't heard from them exactly what the reason is for the delay. Uh, you know, we've asked on a number of occasions, and we really haven't gotten anything direct. Uh, I mean, and their argument to it, to it is, well, there's, there's, there's broader ramifications. That's, that's kind of the one issue I have heard, that, uh, you know, they are, they are considering this in the context of other projects uh, now and in the future that uh, may or may not want to, uh, to have the same, same uh, you know, arrangement. And so uh, they're really assessing the impact from a much broader basis than just Hamilton. So I think that's a fair comment to make, but I, I can't imagine that it would take all that long to kind of get to a conclusion. Uh, the Eastgate portion uh, that, of course, has been re-extended out, how much of that is a hurdle is a hurdle right now, or is it? No, not at all. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it was anticipated that uh, it would fit within the billion-dollar envelope. Um, you know, the original cost, is, as you recall, uh, Scott, was $815 million. This is going back, you know, four, four years now. Uh, I can't imagine that the uh, costs have increased all that much. So there was, uh, you know, certainly a, a fairly significant contingency envelope build in, built into the billion-dollar funding scenario. But, you know, at the end of the day, you won't know until you get out to, uh, you know, competitive bidding process. So, um, but these gate portion is uh, is full on and uh, it's part of the overall project now and it uh, it is not a factor in terms of any delay or any complications the environmental assessment's been done uh, that was done uh, you know probably about a month and a half ago so it's uh, it's ready to roll 
are we behind? Is there a delay? Uh, you know, they were talking about we should well, be where we were in the spring. We had a we had a projected uh, timeline, uh, you know, a reasonable projected timeline, and I think this has delayed it by a couple of months. Uh, if they, uh, you know, they take another month to decide, and then we have to go back out to the RFQ uh, request for qualifications, then uh, you know it'll take another two months uh, on top of that. So, uh, conceivably, we could be six six months behind from the original timetable, which is not a disaster. But it certainly uh, is, is something that uh, you don't want to continue to kind of lag behind the timeline because, uh, you know, we all want to get this project up and running. Uh, is, are you concerned that this is a stalling tactic in any way? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, again, uh, this, this came out of left field for uh, Metrolinx and the province. Uh, you know, there was no, there was a surprise to them to have uh, the city kind of make this overture at this point. So uh, I think uh, I think they're taking their time to make sure that uh, they are they are not only making a decision that uh, that benefits the the Hamilton project, but all future projects coming forward. Uh, all of them, uh, you know, will have similar kinds of impacts and similar kinds of funding envelopes, and uh, and maybe potentially similar similar kinds of requests to maintain and operate. So I would imagine that their their decision making process is much bigger than just Hamilton. Uh, is the HR is the HSR request realistic? Do you think, Mayor? Well, you know that's a, that's an interesting question. I think uh, you know for me, it's uh, you know operating, you know, isn't really a big deal. Uh, you know that uh, I think could be an easy answer for the province or Metrolinx to make. the uh, The bigger issue is um, you know the the, the contractual. Uh, arrangement, the competitive bidding process should include maintenance for sure, because you want to make sure that whoever's building it is also responsible for maintaining it. And I think and, that's uh, I, I think that's the that that's the sticking point for most is you know probably most yeah. Hamiltonians don't have a problem with HSR uh, running it. The problem is is that as you've mentioned all along that it's great if the people who start at the beginning have an interest in the end. Therefore, uh, you'll just get a better process all the way through. Well, you get a better process, you get a better product, you mm-hmm. get a, um, a greater sense of responsibility for whoever is bidding on it and building it, that they're, they're building something they're going to have to look after. So it's going to be costs borne by them, not by someone else. And, uh, you know, you can, you can then understand that the imperative for quality work and long-term maintenance is uh, much higher and, uh, and much better if you're uh, going to be responsible for it. So uh, that's, a, that's a logical, I think, uh, conclusion to make. So... I would say, uh, you know, maintenance uh, should remain part of the RFQ, RFP process and should be part of uh, the, the responsibility of whoever, whoever the bidder is. Uh, the, uh, the operating, um, you know, really isn't such a big factor in my view. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not like we don't have qualified HSR employees that understand transit systems. Wouldn't be all that much of a reach to get them, uh, you know, knowledgeable of uh, operating. Uh, and when we're talking operating, I'm talking about physically, you know, uh, running the vehicle. Right. Um, you know that you know operating might denote a whole range of other things that uh, that may not uh, be desirable to have part of the uh, the process. But the operating the vehicle itself shouldn't be a barrier. Uh, you talked about the responsibility of operating or constructing something and, and then seeing it all the way through. Uh, is that mm-hmm. lacking in places like Toronto or Ottawa, where they have a combination of the two? Uh, you know, not not necessarily. Uh, you know, the uh, the, uh, but but I think I think there's a there's a, a kind of a logical step that we could we could take to to ensure that the quality is the very best quality and and that uh, financially it's it's a, a value added approach rather than uh, someone coming in and uh, and and maybe not providing the kind of long term value that uh, that uh, is required. And you know what, we've had projects in the past, and and you know it's just beyond LRT now. Where uh, you know the uh, the long term maintenance hasn't been included, and uh, and that uh, can lead to uh, some some challenges. And you know the one that I could kind of point you towards is the stadium. Hmm. Uh, so our stadium was uh, was built on a on a just a construction contract without any long term maintenance. And I would say that the quality hasn't been what we would have liked it to be, and the maintenance and responsibility for that now lies with the Hamilton taxpayer. And so uh, I would say there are, there are issues can happen, and you, you can avoid that by making the, uh, the, the, the builder of it the, also the long-term maintenance requirement of it as well. Then you will avoid those kinds of, uh, kinds of issues because they'll build the quality, and 
knowing it full well that if they don't, they're going to have uh, higher costs down the road. So you do feel there is some sort of hybrid model here for the HSR and Hamilton, uh, or sorry, and Metrolinx here in Hamilton then? The way I see it, yes, there's a potential of that. Uh, you know, we'll see what the province decides to do. Uh, you know, they may have other rationale around operating that doesn't necessarily fit with, you know, my vision of operating. So, you know, there's a lot of things that come into operating on a day-to-day basis. Uh, but but the uh, but but I think the potential of having our HSR employees, our great HSR employees, uh, you know, operate those vehicles on a day-to-day basis. In other words, the drivers that are on the vehicles are the similar drivers that would operate, uh, you know, other parts of our system. Uh, you know, has some logic to it. It makes sense to me. Uh, you talked about this being an election issue. Uh, could this all yeah. be kiboshed? Well, I mean, it's always possible. Uh, you know, uh, you know, Ottawa back in uh, you know 2010 uh, or thereabouts was on the path for an LRT, and uh, the the new council back then uh, cancelled it. It cost them uh, some 36 million dollars. They got sued by, I believe it was Acon at the time, because contracts had already been let. And uh, and they uh, then subsequently the next election uh, elected another mayor and they went right right back at it and they're just now finishing the first phase and heading off to the second phase. So, sure, anything is possible. The next council could uh, decide that uh, you know by the time we get there that fifty million dollars is uh, something that they can uh, they can abandon and uh, therefore uh, uh, they could make that decision ultimately. But uh, I certainly don't plan on that happening. And uh, I, I believe that people are coming to understand the value of this investment. Uh, it is not just a short-term transit investment. It's much more than that. Uh, it's, uh, it's about uh, city renewal and, uh, you know, urban density and all the things that uh, we are looking for that, uh, in, our, in our community that uh, will be inspired by LRT. Where do you think this project will be by the time the, the election rolls around? What stage will be well, at? The, the hope was that we would be at a procurement stage. And, uh, you know, I think that's still possible, but uh, the longer this takes, the, uh, the, the less likely that becomes. So it's, I mean, we've got a year. Uh, so certainly uh, this can be uh, the request for qualifications. If the decision comes soon, can be uh, re- reissued uh, probably back in a couple of months. And then an RFP can go out, and that could, uh, could take about six months. So it could very well still fit in with the procurement process that we uh, had originally set out, but, uh, but time is running short. So, uh, you know, we can't, we can't wait too many more months to fulfill that, uh, that, that kind of procurement requirement. You can see how this would only be in the province's best interest to keep this moving. Uh, they're part of this yeah. as well. Have they given you any indication, uh, you said, uh, looking at other systems, other uh, scenarios, have they given you any indication when you will hear from them? I have not heard. So we, we've been asking, and uh, certainly the uh, uh, the media story, uh, I'm sure they'll be taking note of. Uh, we've sent a number of requests over for kind of timelines and uh, when are we going to hear, and we really haven't gotten anything definitive. So uh, I wish I could tell you a better story on that one. I just can't. Uh, the best people to ask is the province. Um, and uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, within uh, within the next few weeks, we can get some sort of an indicator as to where they are and what their decision is going to be. Fred Eisenberger has been with us, Mayor for the City of Hamilton. Mayor Fred, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly, over the past uh, weekend and just prior to it, uh, heard the story uh, again of uh, the rescue of the Joshua Boyle family, uh, his wife uh, and children, and uh, of course hearing the horrific, uh, some of the horrific details of their existence for the last uh, five years and the terror that they endured, uh, of course, over this time, uh, wondering whether they would be uh, saved or uh, killed or, or what the story was. And then, of course, uh, this uh, unbelievable rescue that uh, that started just prior to the weekend. And uh, as I'm watching this story unfold and and, and following uh, media reports of it, uh, and watching the national U- national news, you just you feel for this family. And then all of a sudden, um, all the, the last tagline on the story was, and oh by the way. Uh, Joshua Boyle was one time married to the sister of Omar Cotter. And then they went to the next story. And I'm, I remember just sitting there and, and, and I was watching this news report on a, a, a digital delay. I, I remember go back and watching it. Did I hear what I just thought I heard? 
He was married to Omar Khadr's sister. And as this story continued to progress, you kind of wonder what what's going on? And when his father spoke up and said that he didn't want to take an American plane because he didn't want to stop in an American base and left the illusion that he had something against them, even though they just orchestrated and provided the intelligence. Uh, the Pakistani army, of course, did, did the work, but it was the U.S. intelligence that, that found these people. And then, of course, the next day when he finally does arrive home and you start hearing about these stories and people start asking questions, he said, no, that had nothing to do with it. He just wanted to have the, you know, the quickest ride home and all this sort of thing. But at the end, there still are questions as to what he was doing there, why he was there, um, and, of course, why you would be there with your pregnant wife in her third trimester of pregnancy, which, of course, would draw attention and, and even start this whole thing. Uh, specifically, when the government of Canada tells you to stay away from places like this for exactly this same reason. Uh, of course, this will open up the discussion of uh, dark tourism, which we'll have uh, coming up after the 1.30 news. But to talk more about Joshua uh, Boyle and, and what his family still must endure as they uh, tried to get their life back to normal. Joining us now is John Thompson, security consultant, strategic intelligence group. He's with us now. John, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Nice to talk to you again. John, um, I just remember watching this news report and thinking, oh my God, this is horrific. This is terrible. And then at the very end, when realizing what it, that he'd been married to Omar Khadr's sister, it just seemed odd. Am I the only one that's seeing this flag? Do you find this odd? Uh, no, it's it's not. It, it actually pops up in a number of kidnappings. If you remember back to uh, uh, James Loney and uh, Harmet Singh suit in Iraq. So, what is the story of Joshua Boyle? Why was he there? How did he end up in this predicament? Well, actually, uh, if if you look at the kidnappings of Canadians in the last twenty years. Uh, about uh, a quarter of them have been political pilgrims wandering around in a place where they shouldn't be, sort of you know, doing what they vaguely think is solidarity work, almost flirting with danger. You know, I remember that was the case with uh, Looney and, and, and Singh, was that they were in Iraq expressing, uh, you know, uh, empathy with Iraqis. Uh, just as uh, al-Qaeda was getting started in the country, and they, they got kidnapped anyway. Um, it's not unusual. I mean, but there are other people who uh, go into dangerous places, missionaries. You know, we famously had the, the two in the uh, southern Philippines that were murdered by Abu Sayyaf. Uh, some reporters that really should have known better. Is, is 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 that what we have here, John? Is that what is that what the case is here? I, I think he was he was being an idiot uh, with his family, but he was wandering around in Afghanistan. He was like vaguely sympathetic to uh, the Taliban, vaguely against the American military. Uh, not really sure what he was doing, and uh, uh, got picked up by the Harkani network for ransom. And I understand this is uh, an affiliate of the Taliban who does a lot of this sort of work for them and tries to shop these people to them, correct or no? Um, that's one explanation. The Harkandi Network are something unto themselves, uh, uh, tribal, ideological, and organized crime all at once. And, uh, you know, if you think you're dealing with them on one uh, account, then they switch over to the other. But they are quite mercenary. So what do you think that Boyle's relationship was with these people? What, what, do you, what was he doing there? As far as I can gather, he was being an idiot. He was sort of, you know, I'm on your side. Boy, those Americans are nasty. You know, you, you know the world is being cruel to you, and, and I like you. And they went, fine, and we're going to hang on to you for a while until we get paid. Wow. Uh, do you think he would have been surprised with their change in tone? Uh, I think he never really, well, he probably thought about it differently every bloody month. Um, again, you, you find this uh, often with the political pilgrims, you know, who are going over to uh, empathize with somebody and then find that they're, they're taken captive. 
but some of them, um, you know, particularly say some of the Europeans who get kidnapped by Hamas or uh, a Palestinian group, you know, they're still trying to empathize or identify with their own kidnappers, and it's like the Stockholm syndrome on steroids. Wow. Uh, I remember when he gave his first press conference, or, or chatted to the press, rather, uh, after uh, arriving in Canada, or at least after being released, he constantly kept referring to his captors using the word stupidity. What do you? It just seems like an odd word to use. What are your thoughts? Well, actually, I think it's himself he should be referring to. But, uh, again, in a lot of kidnappings, uh, for all reasons, criminal as well as political, you often have a lot of nativity. I mean, we had uh, a couple of senior Canadian uh, civil servants like Bob Fowler mucking around uh, in Mali when they got scooped up. And I, I don't know who was more stupid, the, the two civil servants or their kidnappers, hmm. who thought that actually they could you know, turn their kidnapping into uh, uh, a change in Canadian policy. And then you get others, you know, uh, again, uh, I think we used to get geologists and uh, mineral workers kidnapped quite frequently. There's only been right. one case I'm aware of in the last uh, 15, 16 years. Uh, but it's just locals. You know, you're a foreigner. You must be rich. And uh, $2 million sounds like a nice big fund. Uh, is Are there more questions here for you, John, than answers? Or does this just seem typical of this sort of thing to you? I think most of the questions would actually be personal. I don't think answers are forthcoming. But, uh, again, we've seen so many other cases of people who, uh, it's like people who get mauled by animals. You know, they approach a bear or a moose and think, you know, as long as I think loving thoughts, I'm safe. Right. Um uh, he didn't. His father made the point of him not wanting to take uh, the flight to, uh, through the U.S. base and instead directly home. Almost made it as sound as if it was ideal, ideological or political. Uh, Boyle the next day said, "No, that wasn't the case. I just wanted uh, the fastest route home." Would the U.S. How are they viewing this? Would they like to ask him questions? Would they have Would they have asked him questions on this? I have no doubt they would like to ask some questions, at least to get an intelligence briefing. The, the Harkani network, uh, who kidnapped them, who else might be kidnapped, who uh, who he was dealing with. Because, again, you know, th- this is a, uh, a criminal-slash-political mercenary group that the, the Americans have had dealings with uh, ever since they got into Afghanistan in 2001, and they would dearly love to know a lot more. And uh, they're not the only ones. I mean, the Harkani network has uh, caused a lot of trouble, and uh, I've their, their fingerprints are in some of our own battlefield deaths from Afghanistan. So uh, do you think there's any validity to he was avoiding um, the U.S. base, or do you think it's just a case of getting home quickly? I think uh, there's some validity to it. Uh, I, I think he didn't want to be uh, stuck on Guam and having an initial debrief. And uh, at the same time, I, I think there was some ideological factor in there that he just... Uh, thinks the Americans are vicious and evil and the Harkani types were just uh, misunderstood. I mean, the man is confused. Uh, You can tell that. uh, Even though it was U.S. intelligence that got his family out. Yeah. But again, that's the other case. I mean, uh, you think of some of the uh, hostages in Iraq that had been taken by Al-Qaeda in 2005, 2006, and someone had to remind James uh, Looney that he should actually have the consideration to thank the special forces that rescued him because he was rescued with uh, uh, you know there's the two Canadians and two other people but a fifth hostage had been murdered a day before but you know American commandos risked their lives to save him and uh, he couldn't say anything nice to them would Canada let the US question him uh, is, is there immunity or anything there or reason why they wouldn't want to let them talk and why isn't Trump talking about this because he is using it as a victory to say you know we're not going to be pushed around anymore well I think the Americans are probably hoping that he still might come forward and volunteer some statements hmm. you know that sit down perhaps you know turn up at the American consulate or something and and talk to a, a consular official and say, okay, I'll, you know, ask your questions, I'll try and answer them. But again, you know, there, there just might not be much gratitude for his rescue here.
What do we know? Is there anything with the marriage to Omar Khadr's sister? Again, some have said to me, Scott, that's totally irrelevant, but how can you say it's irrelevant when Omar Khadr was raised in a family uh, filled with terrorist sympathizers, including his father, so why wouldn't that make you curious about the sister? Well, this is his sister. was his sister's second marriage. The first one was to another principal in Al-Qaeda, and uh, her own reputation, especially with the RCMP, who uh, you know, took off her laptop, interrogated her over some of the messages she might have been carrying back to North America. And uh, again, her frequent pronounced sympathies are for Al Qaeda. I mean, it's, you can't make a mistake like that. It's like acting surprised that someone was a neo Nazi when they they wear an armband and jackboots and uh, have a picture of Hitler on the living room wall. Hmm. Um, what was life like for the Boyle family uh, in captivity? Uh, it changed according to circumstances, but uh, and there are mixed reports, and the only people who really talk about it will be the Boyles. Um, sometimes we know that hostages are well taken care of, and sometimes we know that their conditions are miserable beyond uh, description, you know, especially... Uh, um, you know, female reporters have been kidnapped, and, you know, sexual assault is the case uh, uh, stored in, you know, rat-infested cellars and chains, and other people have been treated quite comfortably. Uh, the Taliban says that there's no truth to any of this. Is there any reason uh, we should believe anything the Taliban says? And my other question is, why are they even commenting on this? I mean, you know, um, you know... Well, they are. Uh, taking... The Network are business partners of theirs, and Someday they, uh, they're going to uh, view the heart of the network as being totally blameless in this and innocent as young spring lambs. So do you think America or the U.S. will comment more on this, or is this story over for them? Uh, it'll be a back-page story, but uh, uh, it depends on what the boils do. If they sit very quietly and don't say much and stay out of the public eye, I don't think we'll hear anything from the Americans. But they, they might quietly express disappointment that they don't get a chance to learn anything for the expenditure of time, money, and effort. Uh, how long do you think it's going to take this family to recover from this ordeal? Judging from some other accounts, they never might completely. Do we? How do Canadians process all of this? What are we to take from this? Um, again, this all started at the end of last week as, oh my goodness, uh, and, and lots of compassion and love for this family. Now people are trying to figure out exactly what went on. What are we? What are we to take from this? What's the? What's the end message? Well, the point I really wish people would take is, you know, stay out of the world trouble spot. You know. Or if you must, for professional reasons, travel to a world trouble spot, pay attention to all the best advice on security. So, you know, don't go off and think you can uh, express solidarity with local troublemakers. Or if you're going to be a reporter, stick with someone else who knows what's what instead of branching off on yourself. Um, and remember, it's, of course, you know, it's a bad world out there. There are criminals who would like to take ransom from you. There are insurgents who think they can gain some policy advantage if they grab you. You know, pay attention. And also remember that um, so far the track record for about 20 Canadians that have been picked up in the last uh, 16 years or so is that uh, three of them have been killed. Uh, five, sorry, seven of them have been rescued. And, and as far as we can tell, a ransom was paid on at least one of them. But for the most part, the Canadian government can't really do anything. So if you're in trouble in the back part of the world, it's on your own head. Are you surprised, John, that they reproduced while in captivity? Well, I don't... Uh, I it, think almost it, it almost sounds like I'm talking about a zoo animal here, the way that sounded so insensitive. But I just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. Let's just say, if you remember uh, or, or look back at some of the big power blackouts, yeah, you know, like yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. when the electri uh, electricity is out for days, yeah. wait in the, uh, look at the birth rate announcement uh, nine months later. Mm -hmm. 
So is this a means of coping? Uh, do you do you look at it that way, or do you look at it like why would you want to bring anyone up in that environment? Uh, I don't think they might have been thinking that much about it. Again, it wasn't like they're going to be supplied with anything by way of birth control by their captors. And mm-hmm. There probably wasn't much else to do. Uh, do you think there's more we're going to learn about Boyle? Do you think he is a sympathizer in some way? I think so. I, I, you know, he might eventually try and cash in and maybe try and write a, a memoir or something, or or his wife might. Uh, I mean, again, they, they've just spent years uh, without any source of revenue, and they, the family finances are in trouble. So there might be a book, but it might be just as important to read between the lines as read what's actually written. Uh, what if he travels again, especially to this part of the world? Will government officials be wary of that? Um, I think so. I mean, at the very least, uh, well, he's a Canadian citizen. He's entitled to a passport. He's committed no offenses in Canada. Uh, it's not like his ex-wife uh, and their family that are not granted passports because we know they'll abuse them. Do you think we're going to hear more about this, John, or do you think it's going to fade away? Well, again, there, there's some other interesting narratives from other kidnapped victims, but uh, almost no one remembers them. I mean, uh, Bob Fowler told his story that uh, we've had a couple of other reporters that, you know, one that told the story about being kidnapped, another one that didn't, um, and they will eventually fade from the public memory. John Thompson has been with us, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, talking about the family of Joshua Boyle and, of course, what they had to uh, endure over the last uh, five years. Uh, John, thank you so much. With those, do we have any idea, John, about what his conditions were like? I mean, we hear stories of the family being held in a in a hole in the ground, a cave in the ground. Is that what we're dealing with here? It's it's often the case. Uh, uh, and then again, in most kidnappings that I'm aware of, uh, they're, they're kept in really nasty conditions. I, I'm not aware of anyone that's been kept in anything that would be assumed to be reasonably comfortable. Uh, as well, as I said, John Thompson with the Security Consultant Strategic Intelligence Group. John, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. October is Breast Cancer Awareness uh, Awareness Month, and a uh, fascinating article today in the Hamilton Spectator, the Motherload column, uh, written by uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld. Uh, you you paid for my breasts. I promised to take good care of them. I bet you that's her own headline too. Uh, Lorraine, of course, auto writer with Post Media, Motherload column in the Spec, host of the Lemonade Car Show, all that sort of stuff. She's with us now. Lorraine, thanks for taking the time to join us today. How you doing? So, uh, talk, great column in the spec, by the way. Thank you. Uh, talk about this, talk about the experience. Well, you know what, first maybe we should start with yours. Do you, can you tell us your experience? What can you tell us? Yeah, I've written about it before, actually, because I think it's something that's really important for women to talk about, especially, but for everybody to be aware of. Um, my mother and my sister both died of breast cancer, and so three years ago I had a prophylactic double mastectomy, which means preventative. And the PATH report came back because what they do is they scoop them out and then they put it under a microscope. And I did it preventatively, but it came back that the there was carcinoma in situ in one breast and the cells were mutating in the other mm. one. So basically, I you, got just under the wire. You were on your way then. Yeah, and I'd had a clear MRI three months before. I was in a high-risk program, so we were monitoring closely. And I'd been cleared just a few months before that. So, um, yeah, I was lucky. Uh, my younger sister did the same thing, um, about six months behind me. So I'm three years out now, and Bra Day, which is Breast Reconstructive Awareness Day, uh, the plastic surgeons, the, the Javansky, um, they held it this year. And they're held, I think, internationally. I know across North America, but they try, if they can, to get women who have gone through it to come in and take your shirt off because it's show and tell. Women going through this. They want to know, yeah. It's overwhelming. There's so many choices and options, and you don't know everyone's case is different. So mm-hmm. even, you know, seeing someone that has the same surgery that you, you know, are perhaps having, the results can always be different. So there's no, everything has, has an asterisk beside it, and treatment can change the outcome. Like, there's so many factors. But I figure we've got to start somewhere, and for women especially, just to have someone talk to you 
and say, yep, this, this is this is me. This is what Man. I like. I, I can't I can't even imagine what these encounters must be like as someone who has gone through it. And then you're talking to someone who may be just about to. What is that like? It it sucked my heart out of my chest. I was talking to women of all ages, but there's a handful if they're listening now. They were young enough to be my daughters. And my heart was breaking for them because I know as as a grown-up woman what I went through. And one of these girls had already been diagnosed, and I was just, I, they're so brave. And even just to come to this event, there's probably 100 people there, like a lot of people come to it. But to even show up there, and some of them bring their you know friends or families, or some come on their own, and you already feel so isolated and terrified. Like, it's terrifying. I don't care what your age is, but the fact they came was a big deal. Like I thought, okay, that's the first step. They're coming to ask questions. So you want to be as open as you can. And I beg them. It's the same thing when I talk about being bipolar. You want to let people ask you questions and you want to be honest, but you also want to be hopeful. (laughs) You know, Mm. like I'm pretty blunt. You know me. Yeah, that's, (laughs) you know what? You're perfect for this, Lorraine. Like, honestly, this is, this is so great that you did this. When, when did you realize this was going to be a part of your life? How old were you when your mother in in the situation with your sister and such? Um, I, I was 32 when mom was diagnosed. She died when she was 70. She was diagnosed when she was 64, I believe. Um, the sister went from diagnosis to death in two years. Oh, my. And she was only like 53, so that was... And any other history in the family? Any other reason to believe prior to 32 that this was an issue? Um, no, uh, but I don't have aunts. I think yeah. I only have one aunt. Like, we don't right. have extensive family. And my maternal grandmothers all died, you know, before right. I was born, so... You know, we, we don't have this rich history. Now, honestly, we have the best thing going with family histories and being able to yeah. know it really helps for a lot of conditions and a lot of things. I mean, we we don't know anything. My my grandfather was born in 1893 for crying oh, out loud. I yeah. mean, <laughs> so you know, I mean, when you go through surgeries, uh, you know, that's a, a traumatic enough experience. How do you decide to do something that's preventative? Um, we were talking about this. I was talking about this to a lot of people because there is a personality factor involved, and I'm very. Um, not impulsive, but once I make up my mind, I go do things. And I'm also a risk taker. You get her uh, done. I do. I mean, the way I earn a living, the way, yeah, I, yeah. The way I live, I, I'm okay with that. And there's a lot of people mm-hmm. who aren't, and I respect that. Some people just aren't like that. And I, I, you can't put – they have to be safe and feel good about what they're doing. So instead of saying you have to be really ballsy to do this, it's like how can we get you to a place where you can still feel safe yet still make a good choice for yourself. And so you don't have to be me. You have to be you, but but feel okay about the decision you're making. Like you have to be at peace with it. So that means changing the way we approach it, not trying to force someone to be something they're not. Would this be similar to what Angelina Jolie did? Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. How prevalent is this? How much of an option is this? Because I remember when she did it, it even seemed, wow, I, I, I wasn't aware that people would go to this extreme. Um, her odds are even worse than mine. On paper, mine were bad enough. Hers were even worse. Um, I, I beg women to, this is a conversation you have with your medical team or with your doctor. Like it, for, I'm talking in general terms, and what I'm talking about, again, is my stuff. It's not what everyone right. has to face down. Um, it may, we have really good um, high-risk treatment programs here. Dravansky is amazing. They have a terrific clinic in there and the people that work there are phenomenal so it's not something that every woman has to run and do you don't have to start chopping off body parts yeah you know trying to stay alive for me it was the best choice and as it turned out it really was the best choice and you know and as you mentioned every situation is different so you can't it's not apples to oranges here but did did once you realized the scenario and the odds for you and against you does that make the decision for you well gee if i continue with this and then obviously as you said confirmation afterwards does that make the decision for you or is it still like flying without a net I mean, I looked at my life, and you, you know how I earn a living. I'm a freelance writer, so I have zero safety net. And I raise my kids on my own, basically. And I thought, I can afford to be dead. I can't afford to be sick. And so it was very easy to go, wait a minute. <laughs> I can be out of commission hmm. for a few weeks. Hmm. Actually, it was, I think, six days. I binged watched Friday Night Lights. It was great. Um, 
That's how I get a vacation. I get a mastectomy, and then I can have a vacation. That's it. That's it. Then you can watch some. Then you can do some binge watching. <laughs> Catch up on everything you wanted to do. How sad that's is it. that? I know. Oh, well, man. And I, I didn't want to worry my sons. Right? Yeah. I told the girls. I didn't tell the boys. It's like, oh, oh really? Going to be all worried. But, wow. Yeah. So did they not know till afterwards? No, I told them. Um, I told them just before. But I, I just, they were on a need-to-know basis. Like, yeah, I didn't yeah. give them yeah, a lot fine. of information. Yep. Both of them are very protective and very territorial of their mom. Yeah. And they would worry. And I didn't want them worrying. I didn't yeah. want them thinking that there's all this terrible stuff going on. It's like, no, this is a good thing, and I'll be mm-hmm. fine. Just, you know, make sure you put the bins out and do, do all your jobs and don't give me that's a right. time. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, use it to your advantage in any way you can. And their girlfriends were terrific. It's like, keep me fat and, you know, but basically yep. leave me alone because I'm going to be higher than a kite in that room for about a week. <laughs> so you talked about the, the timeline. So what was the timeline from beginning to end and, and when you started to feel whole again, for lack well, of a better word? Um, it was April. Three, oh, before years in April. Wow. Um, three and a half years ago, that was the initial surgery, and they put expanders in, in my case, so I was never totally flat, because I said to them, I do a TV show. How flat am I going to be? Hmm. <laughs> which sounds really stupid, but you, yeah. you, you yeah. need to ask this stuff. And they put expanders in, which is, um, they, they're like little jet packs, and then they jack uh-huh. them up every couple of weeks till you hit your boob size. So you go yeah. shopping. You get to shop. And my do you get to control that? Oh, yeah. My sister goes, we were not born with those. I go, oh, hell, I'm going for a bonus here. I go, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) Why not, eh? And that took, um, I I was six months till the second surgery. Right. And then they take out those little jet packs and they throw in the silicone final. And, you know, you've heard as much about that sort of procedure, people who are doing it for their own reasons, not Mm -hmm. as yours, uh, that being dangerous enough. You had no problem with any of that. No, and you know what? It, that's that's really not that dangerous. This isn't the '60s and yeah. not the horror stories you hear about. So, right. um, and I mean, whatever reason women want to do this stuff, it's mm-hmm. all cool. But um, my thing, I, I have the most spectacular 3D tattooed nipples you've ever seen, and that is a really cool thing that women need to know about. And, what does that mean? Um, there's a tattoo artist. She's got a PhD in medical illustration. She doesn't do barbed wire on your upper bicep or anything. She does medical <laughs> tattooing. And honestly, because I, I lost everything, like they, yeah. took, they took all that out for a danger level, which is good. But my nipples are 3D tattoos, and they look like they could put your eye out. They are wow. the coolest thing you've ever seen. Wow. That is amazing. <laughs> and that's another part of the reason I wanted to be there for women to go, look, this is, you can do this, too. And yeah. one, we stood there talking for 10 minutes, and she goes, oh, my God, they're not real. She didn't know. She didn't realize it. <laughs> nope. That is so, amazing what they can do, eh? It has come so far, and I mean, I, I think about what my mother went through uh, years ago, and it was absolutely horrible. She had a mastectomy. It was just, it's like they ran a lawnmower over her chest and walked away. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. And the people in this industry now and the doctors, they care. They care about the whole woman. And yes, they have to do their medical job and remove the cancer or the um, preventatively to do it, but they also care who you are, and they know that women have to feel total and complete, and it's not just a body part. It's mm. not just boobs. It's who you are. And they are amazing. And they're doing such great work. And the options are changing all the time. And yes, it's terrifying, but there's a lot of hope in here. And there's a lot of choices that people have. And I just want them to know there's a choice that will be right for you. What and did, sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. What did they ask you when you, you know, we, we, there's so many questions to ask here. What, uh, the experience itself in this meeting with these people, what were they asking you? Um, I, I felt like it was almost, um, they either hung back and didn't say anything or they would pepper me with questions like, how long were you out of commission? A lot of, a lot of us have kids and you can't lift anything for about six weeks. Yeah. And like and they said, my, my kids are little, what do I do? And the women were talking to each other. One goes, I found a really good book. You have to, you know, find this book for your little kids, but they want to know how long until I'm normal as in making dinner and doing backpacks and lunches and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how long do you feel human and what's the reaction of men and your husband and we talked about being married being not married like it, it, I, so it you don't even think about that stuff what, what okay so what's that element what, 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 talk about that discussion well it's funny because my my younger sister has been happily married for like 20 years and she did the same thing after i did and we were talking one day and i said to her oh i said you're, you're so lucky that you're married going through this and she looked at me she goes you're so lucky you're single we we both thought the other had it better. I thought because she had someone to rely on, 
and that she could yeah. depend on somebody that she had it made. And she thought because I didn't have to drag anyone through it with me mm. that I had it made. Wow. So the perspectives are that was kind of jolting when I thought, wow, you know, we always try and protect everyone around us <laughs> and women, especially in a family, you tend to put everyone else first. And we, yeah. all these women I know, they're worrying especially about mothers. Yeah, they do. They're worrying yeah. about their kids. And there is a deep fear in themselves, but it's almost like you feel bad being scared for yourself. And the, Obviously, counseling required with someone, uh, you know, by someone like you for these people that, that, that uh, may be going through this process. What about for other family members? Do the husbands need to be sitting there? Do the partners need to be sitting there? Do the kids need to be know, aware of what's going on? I, I Should they be a part of the experience? I think it would be interesting, like this... Um, day that they put together um, was for women to talk to women, which is good. But you bring up a great point. And I know um, men and kids would, ha- like my son, especially the yakky one, he would be great at talking to someone about the fear that kids go through when it's your mom. Yeah. And again, kids temper, t- you know, they're protective as well. So they don't want to say, we're really worried you're going to die. They don't want to say that to you. No. But where do kids take it? So. Yeah. A good family therapist in general would be great so that people can ask these questions. But um, I think just talking about it, and there's no shame. There's no anything. It's like mm-hmm. we are taking care of ourselves and protecting ourselves and doing the best we can. It's what we we would want for everyone that we love. We have to do it for ourselves as well. How scared were you going into this? You know what? I, I was totally bulletproof. I, w- I just changed jobs, too. I just went to the post and didn't want them to know. And so I didn't tell, you know, mm-hmm. only about three people knew. And I was fine. It's like, I'm a warrior. I go through this. I'm really good at surgery. I'm always banged up. It's fine. I was mm-hmm. great until that pathology report came back. And then when they uh, told me there was <laughs> something found there. in it, that is when it hit me like bricks. And So how do you feel after that? I don't want to say vindicated because it's the wrong word. Confirmation? Um, Maybe, I mean, I would have done it anyway because I didn't want to have a gun to my head every time they did an MRI or a mammogram and wait to hear. I was waiting for a diagnosis Mm. and anyone in a high-risk thing that you can't help but think that. You're just waiting for them. Every time they go, you're clear, you just know the next time you won't be. Mm. And so when that came back, it was terrifying, but it was always like, okay, but I've I've done this now and it's, it's, it's done. And it took, well, probably about six months ago, was when it really started to hit me, all the stuff I'd gone through, because I've been running around talking about it and trying to help. I've yeah, that would help it. too, right? Yeah, Yeah, I've done videos. I've done, like, I've been really trying to get the message out there and talk to as many women as I can. But when I sit there by myself sometimes in the quiet, it's like, oh. Yeah, what a trip. <laughs> so um, um, are you concerned moving forward with this, or does this alleviate the threat and the problem? How's your health now? Um. My, my health's great. I'm like I'm healthy. I mean, you can't prevent everything. Um, I'm glad I did it. It was the right thing to do. And I, again, going through, I started getting mammograms when I was 32, and I'm 53. So mm-hmm. I've been wary of this for 20 years since mom got diagnosed, and all women can recognize this. As soon as you're one degree, you start going, ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, those trips are not fun ones. So getting rid of that was great. It also made me very cognizant that live your life now mm. and get as strong as you can because surgery can happen in in an instant. You might have to have something done. So I say to women, quit smoking and men, stop smoking because mm-hmm. surgery and smoking don't go together. Mm. You don't have to be skinny, but you have to be strong. So do core stuff because you can't move your upper body when you have this surgery done yeah. and your whole core is what supports you and lets you sit up. So I said, please get stronger quit smoking and make your body ready for war yeah and everybody keep your body ready for war because you want to win and that's one way to do it so so lorraine uh you uh you um you bared yourself for people to show uh other women what this experience was like and to help them and to answer some of the questions that you had when you started what did you get out of this going back in now and and being a part of this wishing i could talk to more women because if there was just a if this was just a representational number of women that needed someone to talk to i it kind of i feel like i 
fail that I have a bigger platform than a lot of people do, and I still can't seem to do it right. Like, I, I just, when I see fear in someone's eyes, and when I see it go away a little bit, or they at least feel that somebody understands what they're asking them, it's like, how do we make all the women have access to something like this? And these programs really help. And I'd like to see them done maybe more often, you know, if they can get the funding behind it, I'm not sure. But I just really wish every woman, I mean, they know who they are. I, I was holding hands and hugging them, and I, I was a wreck. But it's like, if that helped somebody, if they felt a little bit less terrified, then we need everyone to feel that terror kind of relax a little bit. And we just need to stick up for each other. And I'll do my little bit, but if if you feel safe and good about something you've done and and are stable and can talk to someone please pull back the covers on this stuff and talk to people and let we, we need to be a little kinder to each other uh-huh. everyone's going through something let's let's just you know kind of honor that and recognize that we all have some pain and things in our lives and maybe not be so harsh to each other about other things uh, we've only got about a minute left. Um, I've talked to many people who've been through situations like this, scares like this, and they just view life differently now. Yep. How, do you, how do you explain that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not wasting a minute. And how do we learn that without having to go through this? Um, my parents taught me a lot about that because they both died way too early. Um, they, were in, they were 70, both of them. But, yeah, this is not a dress rehearsal, folks. And use the good china. Like, what are you saving things for? Use the good china. Use the good china. Rip the tags off the clothes. Go, go, go. Fill up a tank of gas. Oh, go drive and get man. lost one day. Just oh, do it. That is and, great advice. And it's a Range Rover, by the way. You didn't ask me what I'm driving this week. I, so. Well, you know, uh, this <laughs> seemed really serious, so I thought I'd, but now I will. Range Rover. I can't afford one of them, man. Neither that's can that, I. <laughs> that at my price. What makes them so great? You know, they're just nice big trucks. They're, they're. Uh, are they are they expensive to maintain? Yep. Yeah, see, that's where I'm at. Yeah, they're big leather wombs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the conversation is always interesting when we have Lorraine Sommerfeld on, auto writer with Post Media, Motherload column in the Hamilton Spec, host of the Lemonade Car Show. Lorraine, an incredible story. Thank you again for sharing it with us, and uh, good luck. Keep kicking butt, man. Thanks, Scott. All right, take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.